Hey, this is Bob Nelbandian from the Shockwaves Hard Radio Podcast, the Shockwave Skull Sessions Podcast, and the Shockwaves Videocast. And you are tuned in to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, preparing to give you your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Hopefully, uh, you've been able to retain through the week after getting your dose of uh, hard rock and metal last week with Richie's Talk with Great White's Mark Kendall. If you haven't listened to that one, then I urge you to go back and check that because they covered all kinds of good stuff there last week on the show. So a quick update for you, because I know everybody's curious out there, at least I know Richie will be, is uh, yes, I did finally get my vinyl copies of Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell. Didn't have to wait till June. That was good. But I will say that in the last couple of weeks, the arrival dates for those just kept shifting almost daily. But uh, the final one rolled in, and that was uh, Heaven and Hell. And I really enjoyed having Alexa tell me that Heaven and Hell had arrived. Almost want to keep ordering the album just to hear Alexa keep telling me that. That may be one of the most metal things that Alexa will ever utter. And speaking of things that are most metal, our guest this week is uh, certainly most metal in a lot of people's books. That is Bob Nalbandian, longtime podcaster, host of the uh, Shockwaves Hard Radio podcast. Lots of good stuff that Bob has done, but most notably, In the near term, Bob has been consistently producing kick-ass metal documentaries. Not only the band versus brand and some other great stuff he's done, but most particularly the Inside Metal series. And uh, we have Bob on the show again this week as we discuss the Bay Area Godfathers 2, the true story of Bay Area metal. So again, like the Black Sabbath stuff, This uh, release date on this has moved out a little bit from when it originally was supposed to be done, which was going to be actually uh, this week, if I remember correctly. But uh, as Bob tells us, the date has moved out a bit. But hey, why not get people engaged now, get some expectations, maybe get you guys to even go over to wherever you buy videos and put in a pre-order for yourselves. And, you know, I know a lot of people these days, too, like to just stream it in their homes as well from a service. But... uh, I know I myself, I've got physical copies of every single one of the Inside Metal series, with the exception of this one that I did stream. But as soon as it's available for me to get a hard copy, I'll be buying my own copy as well. So we got lots of stuff to cover with Bob as we go over part two of the Bay Area Godfather's Inside Metal documentary. Always excited to have Bob on. Really like talking to him. We always have a great time. So hopefully that carries through in the interview that you're about to hear right about now. Hey, metalheads, kick back, relax, raise the horns, and stay tuned for another original Focus on Metal, Metal Side Chat, with your host, Scott Thompson. Is that Scott? Hey, Bob, how are you doing, man? Good. How you doing? Okay. You're doing this just audio only, right? Yeah, audio only. Yeah, I figured that. Yeah. Cool, man. How you been? All right. How about you? You know, doing okay. Hanging in there. Uh, you know, trying to trying to keep busy during this time. You know. Um, awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's good good to be talking to you again. And I was thinking about it the other day too. Was you know, as I was watching the uh, the whole thing for for the second time, that I thought, holy crap. You know, with all the interviews being all face to face, and and I just couldn't imagine you being able to get that same level of of kind of of work right now with everybody masked up and all that, and it just kind of would take away from the uh, from the interviews. And I must I imagine that anything you get going on right now in this vein must be getting impacted by all this quarantine stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we've uh, kind of put things on hold. I mean, uh, as as you know, we have part two of Bay Area Godfathers. And that, uh, you know, uh, was planned to come out in March, uh, March 23rd. It's uh, looks like it'll be pushed back a month till April. So uh, uh, but that will be coming out. And we did that pre-COVID, you know, both both titles we did uh, actually almost a couple of years ago, at least uh, 
you know, starting the, the interviews. Um, so those were all done before COVID. And once COVID hit, yeah, you know, we, uh, uh, we decided, Hey, I mean, you know, there was a ban on travel for a while and all this other stuff. It was insane. So, you know, we figured there's, there's really no way. Cause you know, we don't like doing the interviews via Skype or, or whatever, you know, these have to really be in person. And if, if we were going to do another one, the next one, you know, the sensible thing is, is, is to do it on New York and the East coast. And, right. uh, you know, that's kind of what we're contemplating. If we were to travel there and get hotel rooms and meet with everyone and, and, you know, even if we could meet, you know, a lot of people are a little bit paranoid and, you know, you don't want to interview people with masks on, you know, that, you know, so, uh, yeah, you know, we, we just took a hold on. I really don't know where we, we stand with with a future, uh, you know, future titles. We'll see where right now I'm just concentrating on the Bay Area Godfathers since we have a part two coming out, which is a, you know, completely separate movie than part one. It'll be available on all the digital outlets just as, as, as a part one was. So it'll be out, uh, not all the digital outlets. It won't be on Netflix, but it will be on Amazon, Amazon prime, voodoo, uh, iTunes, Google play. And, uh, you know, most of the major ones. So, uh, uh, and of course available on DVD with some, some great bonus features. So that, that's kind of what we're looking at now. And then, you know, as far as the future, we'll just kind of see, wait and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really, what, what set my mind to be thinking about this whole thing too, was the fact that, you know, at the end of it, when, when you show, you know, who the film was dedicated to, and it's like, you realize that, that he passed away in 2018 and it's like, oh yeah. So you really, you were kind of pulling from a lot of stuff you were working on and able to make this happen. So, uh, but definitely, you know, it seems like every time you guys keep going from, you know, all of all of the inside Ellie metal now to the Bay Area Godfathers. It seems like you you tweak the recipe each time. And even between part one to part two, it seems like you found a little bit of a better recipe, even with part two. Like you said, you know, it's a totally different film and it's got some totally different content as well. And uh, I think people are really going to like this one quite a lot. I think so, too. And, you know, we sent out some samplers. Uh, obviously to you and some other press people and the musicians uh, feature in the movie and, and everyone just loves it. It's really a continuation. I mean, how we, you know, I, you know, I think I mentioned before on past interviews with all the uh, inside LA metal titles, we did the same. They're, they're both, they're all two part movies. And uh, that wasn't really the initial intention. We were going to just do it as one, but I, you know, I ended up making these, you know, three, three and a half hour movies. Right. And obviously they're too, too long to put on a digital uh, format to, to get their, you know, the, the regular format uh, and DVD as well. So, you know, Warren uh, kind of made the, uh, uh, you know, he said, Hey, just do two, two, uh, uh, two volumes. And we've kind of took that as a blueprint for all the uh, inside metal titles since, uh, you know, we didn't want to cut anything out. And, and as you say, part two is kind of a different movie. We get, but you kind of get a feel, you kind of get part one and, you know, part two is a continuation and we get more into the, you know, the partying aspect and the, the more the debauchery and, and the individual bands and artists and people talking about them uh, individually. So it, it, it is, uh, it is, it is definitely different. We, we have pretty much obviously the same cast, uh, but it's, uh, you know, they were all filmed uh, at the same time, but it, it's, uh, uh, it definitely, it, it, it definitely completes the, uh, uh, the documentary for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do like that, you know, one thing that I don't know if you guys have done it intentionally, but I've noticed it with every one of the ones you guys have done so far is you always seem to have in each one of these documentaries in each part, you kind of have a thematic person through the whole thing. And this one, for this one, it seems to be Davey Vane is the guy that through all of it, he just keeps popping up and he fits into every everything, even the, the outtake stuff at the end. You've got Davey yeah. Vane again, but it seems like he carries through the whole entire documentary. Yeah, yeah. I think in part two uh, in particular, you're right. Um, and, you know, that's not really an intentional thing. We just use the people that that, you know, we feel have not just, you know, the best quotes, but the quotes that really fit hmm. uh, in in with the chapters that we've got. And and Davey's great. And I'm really glad to hear that because I always thought they were a, a very underrated band. You know, they kind of came out by the time they got signed and their album got released. I think it was well into the 90s, 89, 90. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of after the, uh, 
uh, you know, that, that big hair metal movement. And they were one of the bands with the, the biggest hair, <laughs> which, and, and, you know, the glamiest. So, you know, I, I think they, they could have done much better if their album came out a few years earlier. Uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, Davey's a great guy. And, of course, he worked with, you know, Death Angel and, you know, so many of the thrash bands and, and interviewing all, all the bands, you know, from, from Exodus and, you know, all the thrash bands in, in the Bay Area, uh, you know, from the Death Angel guys to Exodus to you name it. They all credit Davey Vane, you know, so there was definitely, even though they there's this reputation that the thrashers, you know, hated the glamours, you know, mm. the glam guys. Uh, there was always a mutual respect, in particular for Davey Vane, because yeah. he's been on it for so long, and he got into production, and uh, you know, so uh, yeah, so uh, you know, that, again, that's it's kind of cool interviewing the guys now, because obviously, if if we interviewed them back in the day when they were around, you know, in, in the eighties or late eighties, you know, oh fuck those guys, they're a bunch of glam fags, and this and that, you know, just be all that, and you know, and right. and, and now everyone's kind of like, hey. You know, it's it's all good. We all busted our ass. We all had a great time. And, you know, there's just nothing but mutual respect, you know. Right, and, yeah. and that's what I think for all the titles we've done. You know, there's not that egos of, you know, uh, you know, particularly like with the L.A. movies, you know, you, you didn't have that, uh, uh, you know, as, as you would have back in the 80s. I mean, that that was kind of the, the game plan. You, you have to be a rock star and you have to act like a rock star. And, you know, uh, uh, but I think now... Um, you know, g- given it, you know, 40 years later or whatever, 30, 40 years later, you know, people kind of uh, obviously have matured and they uh, look at it more realistically and and people just go, hey, man, we, we all did this together. We all busted our ass. And there's kind of that mutual respect. So, uh, right. right. Uh, but, yeah, that's cool that you you pointed out Davey Vane because yeah. uh, well, he seems like you said, he seems to straddle, you know, through all that stuff where he's got connections in every which way so it always seemed like no matter who you were talking about or what you were talking about in there he was in some way shape or form had touched that whole thing so yeah i thought he was thematically kind of well he was a kind of a good glue to hold it together but you know we also talk about the whole thing about you know how people would have acted in the 80s and then and then i and you know to how they are now and i have to laugh because i i gotta ask it what the hell is up with adam segan's pants i like what is this checkered <laughs> pants thing? Every, I, every time they would come up, you, you'd look and you'd be like, well, wait a minute. Everybody else looks normal in that interview. Like, where the hell did he get those pants and why was he wearing them in public? It just was like, it boggled my mind. It made me crack up every time I saw it. Yeah, Adam, he's quite a character. He uh, he lives in L.A. That's that's kind of a funny situation because we were, that was, uh, I mean, like, so, yeah, some of these interviews were taken five uh, years ago, right. uh, it, I figured that could be off of one of the premieres, probably. That was, I yeah. was gonna say, that was to the premiere of the Rise of LA Thrash Metal in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And what happened is, uh, you know, Adam Segan, who obviously used to manage Exodus, he right. lives in LA, uh, he, he, he was there. Stephen Craig, the old Slayer manager, was there, and uh, uh, uh Michael Coons from Law's Rocket were there. And, you know, they congregated and they all met each other there. They didn't know that they were all going to be there. And they hadn't seen each other in over 30 years. And they're just like talking and telling these great stories. And I'm like, fuck, we got to get this on, on film, you know? So, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing is we didn't have a camera mic we uh, available. We just had, you know, the mic from the, uh, on those segments, just the mic from the uh, video camera. Yeah. So we just kind of had to wing it and put it together. But I just sat him down on the bench and, you know, just with a few minutes we had, uh, I said, Let, we got to get you three together and, and talk about some of those those crazy stories. And that was cool. That was fun. So a lot of the interviews were just like that, man. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's kind of how I like it. You know, we had Danny Shipman, uh, who was a, a co-producer and the editor and uh, he, he uh, helped tremendously on this and he did a lot of the interviews on his own with his with his camcorder so it it kind of gives that real kind of gorilla like look you know for like it's taken from like 40 years ago and they're not just all just uh, talking heads with the same kind of backdrop and the same you know he got people you know he got like death angel after one of their big uh, uh, uh big jam shows that they did i think for uh uh, was it Rob Flynn's birthday or something like that? So we we kind of have different atmospheres. So the guys aren't all 
you know, set aside and, you know, with, with makeup and the hair perfect and whatever, you know, it's right. like some of these guys are right off the stage. Some of these guys are, you know, just very casual in the case of Adam Segan, he's wearing, I don't know what kind of pants they are, but he, but it looked cool. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, man. But yeah, that's, that's kind of a, uh, kind of the vibe we were going for. Yeah. I mean, you definitely got it with that. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and I do like I said. There's there's a there's a good flow to this one too. I really like the fact that you know right off the bat you start off with the whole San Francisco versus L.A. and because it does play into a lot of the bands that kind of shifted up there and, and you know and kind of found and, and made their mark more so in in the San Francisco area. You know, typically everyone thinks Metallica, but you know a lot of other bands kind of congregated up there. So I really like that you started off with that whole. San Fran versus LA whole challenge that was going on and just the differences between the scenes. And I think a lot of people had some great quotes on there too, about, you know, the LA band and, you know, their big thing was waiting to get the, you know, the biggest limo to the gig versus the, uh, the San Francisco guys where it's just more, you know, the wanting to be able to, to, to play a gig or make or, you know, or be friends with all the other musicians and stuff. So it was a, it was kind of a really good contrasting uh, thing that you had going on that first, that first section. Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. And you know, San Francisco and LA, it's it's really, you know, it's 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 California and it's really so it's really so different and so separated, but but it's you know, only about a six, seven hour drive, mm. you know. So uh it makes a lot of sense, you know, to uh uh, for the bands, you know, a lot of bands like, you know, Y&T could have very well been an L.A. band because they played when they were yesterday and today, they were playing the Starwood and the Whiskey mm, and right. Golden Bear. And, you know, I saw them at the Woodstock uh, and when Black Tiger just came out, you know, Metallica opening. And, you know, this was a small club in Anaheim. So they were coming down just as much as they were playing up in the Bay Area. So they were like, you know, they were playing as much as a local L.A. band. And, and same for the others. You know, Metallica, when they were still in L.A., they went up to San Francisco probably once a month. And a lot of bands did. You know, Armored Saint went up there several times. And they would, you know, they all had bands that they were friends with. They would play with Laws Rocket or the Ruffians or you know, uh, some of those bands. And when those bands would come out down here, they would open up for Armored Saints. So it was, uh, you know, the, the, you know, even though there was that heavy competition between L.A. and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, L.A. and the Bay Area, it, it was mostly, you know, the, the thrash, you know, the, the, the competition between the thrash of the Bay Area and the, the glam bands here. But a lot of the bands like Armored Saint and a lot of the others, you know, they all, they all, there was a mutual respect uh, even back then. So, uh, you know, they, they, they all helped each other. And, and then, of course, you had San Diego, which wasn't that big of a scene back in the 80s. Hmm. Uh, I think more in the 90s with the skateboard punk thing, it became a little bit more of a scene. But it didn't have the clubs that L.A. or the Bay Area did. And then, of course, you had uh, Arizona, which had a couple clubs, you know, the Mason Jar and a couple others, the Nightline and Rockers. And, you know, Armored Saint would go out, go out there and do some shows and, and, and vice versa. But it was nothing like the Bay Area and and uh, uh, L.A. that really represented the West Coast uh, metal scene. You had that, you know, it's just kind of like combining New Jersey and New York, you mm -hmm. know. Right. Uh, so many of the bands from, you know, New Jersey, the Overkills, all that, you just kind of clump them all together with, you know, the, the New York bands, you know, the Twisted Sisters and whatnot. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's pretty close together for people that, that don't know a lot of people in Europe don't know how how close uh, you know L A and uh, San Francisco are. So right. yeah, and I think you know you talk about Manichetti and Y and T, and I think Dave had a pretty good quote in here too, talking about you know when when asked about the L A bands and and kind of put it in a nice perspective when he talked about the fact that they they were together so much and, and congregated and kind of cross pollinating, and after a while, a lot of those bands just really started to sound the same and right. some blandness to it. I thought that was a great quote by Dave. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, you know again we re we we uh, interviewed Dave very very early on because he was you know on the pioneers our fir very first right. pilot and he had so many great quotes I think we we uh, ended up using Dave in every single title yeah. uh, the pioneers the LA metal scene explodes I think even the rise of LA thrash metal of course the Bay Area Godfathers them being from the Bay Area and he gave some really good contrasts as you said to the LA and Bay Area scene and talk about going to the rehearsals with you know the bands would show up at each other's rehearsals and yeah. start sounding the same and you know I think too uh, you know with, with LA he had the pressure from the labels and the producers and they all wanted that kind of formulated 
sound, that radio hit kind of sound. So, you know, a lot of those bands really transitioned. If you had seen bands like uh, Rat uh, in the club days, uh, you know, they were they were much heavier, right. uh, you know, and, and, and other bands, you know, they, they were quite a bit different. Uh, they became much more refined once they uh, uh, started getting the label interest and got, you know, did their first couple records. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another interesting thing that was brought out in that first section to it, that to me, it, you know, it kind of passed by really quick, but I thought to me it was kind of a big thing only because we had the same exact thing here in Boston is the whole idea of that whole pay to play crap, which mm. I used to hate. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I think that something like that not being in existence in a lot of clubs, it, you know, it lends to having a lot of bands that may not get exposed initially to uh, to being able to get up on the stage so i think a lot of that too is probably is something that helped with that core of of what happened up there is you don't have to you know be uh, you know pre-selling tickets and other other kinds of crap to 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 get up there and and you know the promoter's going to take a chance on you and, and it, i think it really does make a huge difference in how that scene pans out when you get that absolutely uh the pay to play it's interesting because i always thought it was just kind of an la thing and then i talked to uh, I think LA was the first to do it back in the early '80s. I think now, uh, or you know, uh, o- over the years since the '90s and all, I think even San Francisco and all the clubs started kind of doing it. Uh, but back in the '80s, you know, ba- you know, when you go back to the '70s, uh, late '70s, early '80s, when we're talking the Starwood and you know the, the bands that were in the pioneers of LA hard rock and metal, the not just Van Halen, but Legs Diamond, you know, Greg Leon, Snow, A La Carte, uh, Smile. You know, these bands are packing 800 people. These were local bands, no record deals, no albums out. You know, they would pack in people just because they were good and people wanted to go out and see these bands, you know. And then in the 80s, you had, I think it was when all these bands, you had an influx of bands coming from out of town Mm -hmm. in L.A. that their dream was to play the whiskey, you know, the whiskey and the Roxy, you know, where Hendrix and the Doors and Zeppelin and all these bands, Alice Cooper played and Van Halen. They wanted to be rock stars. They think they do one show at the whiskey, uh, they'll be a rock star. So they'll do anything to play the club. And these promoters saw it. So they're like, hey, you know, you're a no name band. We'll get you in opening for a big band. You pay us, you know, a thousand dollars, which was a lot of money back yeah, then. Yeah. You know, we'll give you a hundred tickets, and if you could sell them for ten bucks each, you break even. You know, if not, you lose what you can't sell. So that became the norm. And the problem was, bands were just lined up to do it. Yeah. They would, uh, uh, and a lot of bands, you know, and, and good for a lot of bands. A lot of bands actually liked doing it because it secured. They had enough friends. They had. They built around a fan club and. Uh, and whatnot, and they had easily, you know, uh, uh, you know, twenty, thirty people that they could sell pre-sale tickets to, you know, at, at ten bucks a pop, uh, you know, uh, you know. So they didn't mind. They didn't mind even if they lost out on some money. They would uh, assure the fans. So you know, a lot of bands adapted to it, and and, and you know, but it did become a problem because. You know, so many bands, you know, they would sell it to their parents and the relatives and and most of these people wouldn't show up Mm -hmm. or maybe some of them would show up. You get a you get a band playing with a bunch of old people in the audience, you know, clapping and oh, my God, my son's a rock star. (laughs) You know, you knew they flew in from fucking Iowa or wherever just to see their, you know, their kids band. And it's just like a family reunion. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's just kind of funny. You know, it's it's not uh, the typical rock crowd. And then after they're done, everyone leaves and it's all the new guys that come in, uh, you know, for the headlining band or whatever. So it wasn't even like they shared the audience because a lot of those opening bands, you know, the head, you know, they would go on at nine o'clock and the headliners would go on at 1230, you know, and so, you know, uh, the the fans wouldn't stick around. So it was really no good. You would just have maybe, uh, you know, 15, 20 people sometimes to see an opening band. But, you know, their, their whole thing is, hey, we played the fucking whiskey, man. This is where Van Halen made it, you know, and they go home to, uh, you know, uh, Nantucket or wherever they're from. And, you know, we played the whiskey and all their friends think they're total rock stars. Oh, my God. How would you play the whiskey? That's incredible. You know, so that that was that was a thing. Anyway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was just, I was just yeah, I just brought back like, oh, I used to I just hate pay to play. We had one place here, Edible Rex, we used to play a lot. And at least he did a cool thing where you would uh, you'd be on the bill. If he, you know, he liked you, he put you on the bill and you got tickets to sell. 
And so you got paid a, a flat fee for the gig, and then you got a bonus for whoever walked in and handed in one of your tickets. You right. got, you got stuff of, added on. So that was good. He was a pretty, pretty, pretty fair promoter that way. So you, you usually, you ended up with, uh, you could build a following and you could, you know, you played gigs and you had a lot of good, actually you had a pretty good, uh, like conglomeration of bands too. You could have, you know, someone like us who was kind of playing more high rock and metal. And, you know, we were back to back with like a, another band out of Boston, like Mission and Burma, that was more, you know, more of a, like a punk type of band. So, yeah, it was, they would sort of have some pretty varied bills too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of the promoters, I do understand they have to, you know, it costs, especially if you're at the Whiskey or the Roxy, it costs a lot to get bands in there, you know. And, you know, like I said, back in the day, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, there were enough big drawing bands that the promoters could do it and pack the house and make a killing without having to do the pay to play. But, you know, at, at that point, I think the quality, uh, you know, in the late, late, especially in the late 80s, you know, uh, they knew they could get away with it. And there weren't enough bands that had that that huge draw. You only had a number of headliners uh, and they would they would want to fill in, uh, you know, the, the opening bands and get, get you know, you know, it, it was definitely a money hungry thing. But yeah. you know, to, to play those those Hollywood clubs, I understand it does. It's not cheap to rent to rent uh, the whiskey or the Roxy. Yeah. Uh, right. Keep those places open. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, uh, one of the things that was it, that was interesting to me, and I was wondering if you struggled at all with it with this, is that you know you're really talking about Godfathers of of, of uh, Bay Area, and but when you started to uh, go through some of the bands, you know, towards the midpoint of the film, and you start going through some bands in here, and you start off with Metallica, you have Metallica, you have Megadeth, and did you struggle at all with deciding to to really kind of put uh, that much focus on either one of those bands? in this one or did you not really think much about it? Well, we just kind of went with the flow and what with what people said. Mm. And, you know, obviously Metallica, even though they started, they, they, they are an LA band, yeah. so to speak, that's where they originated. People associate them with a Bay area band. And the funny thing about Megadeth, what they started, their first shows were all in the Bay area. Yeah. Uh, their first several shows. And they, their whole thing is they, they're not from anywhere. We play, you know, we're, we're a band. We're not, you know, they didn't want to be categorized as an LA band or this band or whatever. We're an international band. I remember Dave Mustaine saying that before he formed uh, Megadeth, you know, that that's what they wanted to be associated by. And, and, uh, you know, they really took it because they, they didn't really play the LA club scenes. They, they did a bit the outskirt clubs uh, like Fenders and uh, the Balboa Theater and, and um, the Olympic Auditorium, places like that. But they never did the Hollywood the Hollywood clubs, uh, Megan. Yeah. So, no, you know, a lot of people, you know, of course, you know, idiots that look at the, the cover because, you know, obviously Warren wanted to put all the big, bigger name bands on the cover, whether mm -hmm. they be from the Bay Area or not. You know, it was, like, oh, Megadeth, they're not a San Francisco band. You know, so, you know, and, and it's about the scene, mm -hmm. you know, as, and, you know, Megadeth were as big a part of the San Francisco metal scene as, as say, a Testament were at the time. They were, you know, again, a band that were going up to uh, the Bay Area, you know, every month or so doing shows, yeah. uh, you know, until they got signed and went on tour. Yeah, and of course, you know, you, you, you get kind of deeper in there, and, and then the third band you have do is, is definitely a band that, you know, everybody would associate with uh, with the San Francisco, and that that being Exodus, they loom large in that whole thing because, one, they, you know, they made such a big impact, but also their members pollinated a whole bunch of other stuff that happened as well. So it, I thought that was a lot of good quotes about them and stuff. And, it, you know, one thing that did kind of, I, I did think about it was, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll run it by you is how big do you think Exodus would have gotten if they hadn't had Bailoff as the singer, you know, in their initial start? You know, I don't know. Cause I, I thought Bailoff, uh, even though, you know, as I, I think, um, uh, Doug Piercy, who later was in Heathen, he was from Anvil Chorus. Mm -hmm. He played in Heathen, and they actually had Bailoff uh, sing for them on, uh, you know, for a while. But he just said he just didn't cut it in the studio. And you know, he goes, Bailoff's not a great singer, right. but live he just had that special something. And they were definitely a live band. And he was, you know, as most people have said, you know, uh, he, he wasn't. Uh, he was just this 
great front man live. And he wasn't a pretty boy. He didn't have a great voice, uh, so to speak, but he had a total attitude. I think that's what made them a big underground band. Now, if, if you talk about getting a, you know, say a, 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 a good looking, you know, singer or someone that had more of a voice of a Dio or Halford. Sure. It could have probably carried the band a lot further commercially, um, you know, out of the thrash realm, uh, you know, the way Metallica and other bands did. I don't think they were looking at that. I think Exodus was one of the bands, uh, you know, even Testament and all those bands, you know, they ended up doing these these power ballads and and and, and other stuff. And, and, and most of the bands, thrash bands did. And I remember Exodus used to have T-shirts, you know, uh, what was it, four albums and still no ballad or something was on the back. Uh, and they were like proud. They were proud of being this underground metal band. So, you know, I- I'm sure uh, to the mainstream audience, a lot of people did not care, or even the mainstream metal audience, a lot of people didn't care for Bailoff's voice, uh, you know, uh, because it was such a thrash kind of voice. And I think when they tried to get a little bit more radio friendly, it, it didn't work. And then, of course, you know, Steve Zuzza joined. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think I think they could have, but I don't think that was really their intention. I think they they were one of those bands that, that really, uh, you know, they, they were so loved in the Bay Area uh, and in Europe. You know, I don't think they really cared about the, uh, uh, you know, the commercial success of yeah. America being a big... Uh, everyone wanted it, and everyone yeah. wanted the money, but I don't think it was something where... They felt the need to change their their whole sound and image. Well, I just was I just was wondering if you know the the fact that you had this guy who was larger than life and like you said live just basically stole the show from everybody. You know that if they didn't have that huge personality on the stage, would they have gotten you know such a such a following, such a oh, hardcore loyal following that yeah. you know that then uh, that really planted the seed to let them get to where they were. You know. Well, I think it was definitely the voice, the voice of the Bay Area, you know, kill the posers, kill, you know, and that became kind of this, uh, you know, uh, this chant that, you know, the, they would say, uh, I never saw them in the Bay Area. I saw Exodus was Bayoff uh, in L.A., you know, obviously, I, you, you know, I grew up in L.A. or and then Eric, so I see them at Fender's Ballroom and uh, some of the other clubs uh, back in the day. But uh, but even there, you could tell, and and the, and the the fans really gravitated to him. So yeah, he definitely did have that presence and uh, uh, you know that 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 craziness. But you know, again, dude, all, all the members of Exodus. I mean, Gary Holt and mm-hmm. and Rick Hunolt at the time, and and uh, you know Tom Hunting on drums. I mean, they were incredible musicians and for playing you know that style of thrash metal uh you know they were top 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 rated musicians absolutely so you know i think i think exodus really was the whole package although they you know they did have this charismatic front man that that was really the vocal not really just the vocals the uh for uh uh exodus but i think the entire bay area a thrash scene. He re- represented that as as this this singer front man that you know yeah. uh, that was thrash metal. You you know you say you know yeah. Well, what is thrash metal? You just look at a picture of of of, of Paul Bailoff from Exodus. You know, that that defines it right there. Yeah. 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 And I you know uh, some of the other choices. I really I thought they were pretty cool. You know, obviously you had to put Y and T in there. You just. And that was, I really like that you had that in there. But I also like you threw Vicious Rumors in there as well, which is kind of one of those bands that people, a lot of times, for whatever reason, tend to forget. But the fact that you, you know, you threw that in there, you had such great stuff on there about them. I thought that was really, really nice to see that one. Yeah. You know, again, along with John, uh, with uh, uh, Danny Shipman, who uh, hooked me up with, you know, he, 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 uh, you know, grew up pretty much grew up in the Bay Area. And so did John Stranansky, uh, my other uh, co-producer. He uh, uh, was able to get a lot of these interviews as well, because he grew up in the Bay Area. Did, uh, as you probably know, the Metal Rendezvous magazine he published. So he knew all these guys. And uh, I definitely, you know, as, as you know, with the Inside Metal titles, we, we, we cater to all the genres of of metal uh hard rock and metal right. and and we don't want to change that for uh the bay area a lot of people think that oh this is just a bay area thrash movie they lump it in with the bay area thrashing no it's not we and we purposely wanted to get you know vicious rumors they were a huge band you know they they signed with atlantic they got their 
you know, their their major label, and they did really well in Europe. Never quite made it here in, in America, but on on the scene, they were one of the very early bands on the uh, you know the Bay Area scene from the very early '80s. So was Head On mm. and Roadrunner. You know, and uh, uh, so many of these bands, you know, Vane, as we mentioned, Jet Boy, uh, a lot of those bands, you know, and I think as, as Jimmy Arsenault, one of the uh, promoters says, he goes, you know, we would do these glam bands and, and even bands that, you know, didn't have records that no one really knew of Matt Anthony and bands like that, he would mention. They would pack the Omni, you know, just as much as, as as Exodus would pack it. So we could do a night of glass. So a lot of people thought that the, that glam and that scene did not exist in the Bay Area, but it was huge. It just didn't get the notoriety of, of the uh, of the uh, you know thrash bands. And of course, it was the opposite in LA. You know, the glam bands got the no- most of the notoriety, where the thrash bands were kind of you know, uh, you know, uh, lesser known as so right. to speak. Right. Yeah, yeah, but no, we definitely want to cover all the bands. So obviously, uh, Vicious Rumors, uh, a huge part of that scene. You know, we got Jason Becker, which was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, uh, again, grew up in the Bay Area and, uh, you know, joined up with Marty Friedman and Cacophony. And they did some shows in the Bay Area uh, you know, back then, Marty Freeman with Hawaii, you know, Marty's in this, you know, he did some shows. Uh, I don't know if he's in part two or not. I know Jason has a couple quotes. Yeah, Jason's uh, in part two, but Marty isn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think it was, but uh, he is a part one. But, you know, we, we want to get, get get that whole, you know, and of course, Mike Varney, who mm-hmm. was a guitar guru who started the uh, U.S. metal uh, compilation records that really really kind of brought the limelight to to the Bay Area. That was actually pre-Brian Slagle and Metal Blade records. Mike Varney was the first before Megaforce, before Metal Blade. So you got to give him a lot of credit. And that really put the Bay Area on the map when when I heard those first U.S. metal. And then you had, you know, Ron Quintana and Ian Callen from KUSF and Metal Mania magazine, who, you know, was a big, big part, huge part of the these scenes. So, you know, it wasn't just the bands. You had all the people in the industry that were uh, just as supportive, uh, uh, you know, more supportive than I think any other a city in, in the underground, you know, with, whether it be college radio or the fanzines. So, yeah, it was definitely a, uh, you know, a, a team effort. Hey, this is Ted from Death Angel, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Yeah, and I like that you do, you know, and you did that with the uh, LA Metal series too. Where you had like DJ Will in there. You had sure. some of the, the, the some of the promoters and, and bookers around that scene as well so yeah i like the fact that you have a little, some of the behind the scenes folks as well kind of uh, bringing up the story yeah I, I like that whole cohesive kind of full view that that you guys always throw into these things yeah and we had also you know female artists like leather leone i was i was psyched to see my buddy leather in there uh, yes yeah i was like holy crap people. there she is yeah a lot of people think you know uh uh, from Chastain forward, and they, they don't realize she was a big part of the uh, San Francisco Bay Area scene back in the early 80s with different bands. So it was great to get her as well, get that female perspective, because as you know, back then, I think in L.A. you had a lot more of the female bands, uh, uh, Betsy Bitch, mm-hmm. and, you know, of course, Vixen. You heard, uh, we had a lot with Ann Bolin on the L.A. Ann one. Bolin. Yeah. With Hellion and and uh, Jaded Lady, who were start out with as Leather Angel, an all girl band, Precious Metal, mm-hmm. who we got in. So there were quite a few. Uh, I think in 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 uh, the Bay Area, there I know there were there were a few uh, 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 ba- uh, bands, but uh, to get into more of the metal scene, it, I think it was you know, and as she puts it, it was a rough rough scene for a woman to to get into, especially to play alongside of some of those thrash bands, uh, right. you know, at Ruthie's Inn and some of these, these other clubs. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, I like that some of the other, yeah, I think that, you know, it's balanced with what you did. Cause again, you, you know, you have like Laz rocket in there and, yeah. you know, but I like the fact that it's tied back to the beginning of the film. You start when you know, have the early Metallica bills and you've got Laz rocket on those bills as well. So it, I think it, it, it balances all that out. And then of course you had to have DA on there. So it was, it was good that you had some good, good talk on death angel. Um, I, I love the, the, the quote from one of the guys about seeing them and being like, uh, saying, I think Andy was like nine or something. And yeah. I cracked up and both times I watched the film, I hear that quote. I cracked up. 
there's all different stories about when he started. Now, I, I think he was 11 when they actually first started playing out. Uh, yeah, I didn't uh, think he was nine, but I, I, that's why that quote cracks me up. We've had yeah, we've had Andy on the show a couple times, too, and he's, yeah. a, he's a character, but I was like, I don't think it's nine. <laughs> he might have started playing and, and you know rehearsing and mm. maybe doing parties when he was nine, but I think when they actually started uh, you know, uh, uh, gigging. And I think they got their first record deal with the Nigma when he was 12. Yeah, uh, he, if was I'm, pretty, he was pretty young. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's it. And I'm glad you mentioned Laws Rocket because people don't realize they were like the big band. That's who Metallica would open up for mm, when right. they would come up from LA to, to play the big, you know, I mean, you had several, you know, you had Hans Naughty, you had a few other bands that, uh, you know, people don't, don't, don't talk about these days, but they were all really the bit, the big bands out there head on was a very big band back in the day. Uh, but yeah, laws rocket as far as a metal band and putting on a show, they put on, you know, uh, you know, kind of like what wasp did in LA with the explosions and the bombs and stuff, you know, laws rocket, uh, put on a, a full on, on metal show, uh, in the club. So, uh, uh, yeah, they they unfortunately never really made it big. They did, you know, a few uh, uh, independent records, uh, and I think it was uh, Eric Peterson that said uh, in in either part one or part two that you know some just didn't translate. Lost Rocket were a great band, but it just didn't translate to vinyl. You know, yeah. either the yeah, that was in part two because he was talking about that and about like, and maybe the album. the album covers didn't look right yeah. or yeah, it was that was part two. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm already getting confused on <laughs> so many times. But yeah, which was a great quote, which was actually very true, uh, I think, with, with Laws Rockets. You know, some of these bands uh, uh, didn't quite translate on, on studio as well as they did live. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about great quotes, too, is I like the fact that you go through all this one. And I don't really remember it from any of the other ones, but you literally titled it Conclusion. And you had, a, and it seemed like you, I don't know how it must have taken you guys so long to really select these great quotes that would be like concluding words. But there was one, and I don't even remember who said it, but they talked about one of the successes of the scene being that it was really based around encouragement and not judgment. And I thought that was a great concluding comment. Yeah, that I believe was uh, uh, Vicious Rumors. Um, uh, uh, Jeff Thorpe from Vicious Rumors. Okay, yeah, it might have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of, you know, picked... uh, uh, you know, we wanted to end obviously the final chapter with, with just kind of you know looking back on, on the scene and how it was, and I think you know uh, all the quotes we had from uh, you know Craig uh, uh, Le Cicero to uh, 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 Jimmy uh, Arsenault, the promoter. You know, really kind of looks back on on how. Uh, how the scene has changed and how San Francisco's changed. I think uh, one of the other uh, uh, girls in there was uh, Jerry uh, uh, Jerry Finnelly. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce the last name, but right. you know she was a, a big part of the uh, uh, San Francisco scene from early on. She talked about being with Rock Justice with Mike Varney. So we're talking like 1980, right. and uh, you know she's had talked about it. And this is, you know, the thing with with a lot of these big cities and the gentrification. She says, you know, no, no artist could afford to live in uh, uh, San Francisco now. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, so they, it'll never be the same. You'll never have that artistic. You have to, you know, you have to be a millionaire pretty much to live, you know, to have a decent place here. And uh, so uh, she said that just kind of ruins it for for everything. So the scene will never be be quite the same. And and being up here in the Bay Area now, I could attest to that. It's completely different. You don't see any kind of metal uh, vibe at all or anything uh, uh, here, unless you go to a metal concert. You know, and you see some some old you know some of these musicians that that are in the movie. But apart from that. You know, on the streets, uh, you know, which are pretty much in most big cities, but even in LA or Sacramento, you would still get kind of, you know, a bit of a metal vibe here and there. But here it's just all tech and money. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah. it's definitely changed. Uh, and, you know, for, for a musician and, uh, you know, for uh, a band starting out, it's, you know, San Francisco is not the place it used to be. Right. Yeah, and I mean it's kind of like that with a lot of places. I mean, when I you know back when I talked to Joe Perry and and you know we chatted a lot just about a lot of the clubs that we used to play that just aren't wow. here anymore. And right. uh, you know, I, and like one of the biggest clubs in Boston at, at, at one time when I was coming up was the Channel. 
Um, yeah. One, it was great because it had a parking lot. And, of course, in metal history, that's probably the, you know, people think about that as the the, the club that Metallica played, and then they get all their gear stolen. But, uh, oh, that's you know, right. Yeah. yeah, but, I, you know, I used to really like like the like the channel and and uh to love playing there it was a great room but you know now and now it's like a parking lot just a whole and total parking lot because that whole area has just become like you said it's become gentrified it used to be all yeah. little factories and, and rehearsal spaces and it was really crappy and yeah now it's all very very expensive uh like high-rise apartment buildings and things yeah it's and it's just gone yeah. Well, that's something we covered in, in the Bay Area Godfathers, I think. Yeah, in uh, part one, you guys talked about, you guys went around to a bunch of the places. And yeah, right. so if you guys watch part two, you will see some of those clubs. So during the end of it, when you see just what may look like an oddball place, you can go back to part one and see exactly why Bob put that thing in, the, in part two. And it's basically showing you all these clubs that are exactly what he just said, which is just all like tech and companies now. And you wouldn't even know that that was a, a really legendary rock club at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed, you know, but you know, you think about it, it's like, wow, that was, you know, 40 years ago. So there's not really many clubs that, you know, you got the whiskey and the Roxy in mm -hmm. LA and, uh, some of those clubs, uh, you know, even in the Bay Area, Slim's just recently closed. I think the coronavirus has really put put the nail in the coffin for a lot of these clubs yeah. that that you know that you know went about you know kept kept the flame burning for you know thirty forty years, and then this just really killed it. So it'll it'll be interesting. It's it's going to be you know, and that's again why we like to document these movies because it tells you. How the scene was, and, and you know, people would say, "Oh, it's going to get back to that." It'll never be the same. I mean, come on, let's be honest with each other. I, there's no, uh, you know, for one, there's no labels that are supporting the scene uh, and supporting the, the the touring mechanism and, right. and whatever for the artists. And you know, there's not many clubs left. Uh, you know, we'll see how it, long the House of Blues chain is going to last you know i know the la house of blues closed down you know a few years ago and uh you know and it's a shame I, I you know you don't like to see it happen but live music is is you know gone by the wayside mm -hmm. in, in many ways you know so it's 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 really uh it's really a shame you know when when uh you know you talk about these clubs and what gentrification has done and and everything else to a lot of these clubs in the areas but uh you know, that's that's what made it special. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before I let you go, I do want to just, uh, you know, anyone that doesn't know that you do more than just make all these incredible rock and metal documentaries is that uh, you've, you know, been doing podcasting forever. Uh, definitely been a big influence on me and on the show as well. And uh, so what's up with uh, with Shockwaves? Well, we got these Shockwave Skull Sessions. We've kind of moved into the video uh, market as well since a lot of people like the uh, video uh, chats uh, and as you know skull sessions is more of a roundtable type of discussion that's how I originated it back in 2008 or whenever we started it you know as more of a, a, a you know roundtable discussion style uh, thing and we kind of carry on that tradition um, and it's part of the CMS podcast network. So you can go to cmspn.com, which is great because we now have affiliates with, you know, uh, other podcasts, talk to me, uh, uh, drag the waters, uh, you know, of, of course, aftershocks and mm -hmm. the classic metal show. So, uh, it's all, all, all in, uh, on that network and he's actually building the network, uh, getting some more podcasts available. So, uh, you know, you can go to again cmspn.com or shockwaveskullsessions.com will lead you to that page as well. And uh, yeah, we do it. You know, we just put out a great uh, new episode about the 80s metal scene. But, you know, what's funny is, is you had the other authors from the book, uh, uh, Nothing But a Good Time. Mm -hmm. I know you and Richie talked to British authors that did a, a different book. Yep. And when we got uh, Richard and and Tom, uh, we thought uh, at first I thought uh, they were it was the same book. I go, oh, you're from England. I go, no. And then they laughed. I said, oh yeah, you go there. There's another title by that book. So yeah, yeah we we got both of those on, and, and our co-host uh, Tom Brennan, who I'm sure you know, he's a friend of Richie's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm I Richie's friends. Yeah, 
Yeah, so he he co-hosted that with me, uh, uh, which was a lot of fun. He also did the Ricky Warwick interview we did uh, with Matt uh, uh, previously. So we got that. We got a great, um, uh, you know, a lot of people love the catalogs when we go through the entire band's catalogs. And we got Rick Lee from 10 years after. Uh-huh. Uh, who uh, myself and Monty Connor, who was like the biggest 10 years after fan him and David Ted's who is like the the God of amongst rock and metal fans. I mean, this guy's seen like, I think black Sabbath on every single tour since paranoid, you know, onward. And he's, he's, he he was, was everywhere. He was in Detroit during the whole, you know, MC five, Alice Cooper, you know, a Stooges explosion. He was in the, uh, in England when, in Birmingham, when Zeppelin and, and Sabbath and all those bands did their first shows. He was in LA to catch, you know, uh, all the, I mean, he was everywhere, this guy. So he, he's a part of it. And, uh, also Mark Bonilla. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I've had Mark on the show once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, great guitar player, and he played with Keith Emerson, and he's a huge 10 years after fan, so that's really good. That's an audio-only podcast because uh, uh, a, a couple of the guys uh, weren't, weren't uh, tech-savvy to get uh, get the video <laughs> together, so to speak, but uh, it, it's fun. It's a great audio podcast. Uh, that'll be coming up next. That'll be coming up next week. So. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's it is it is weird that after all this time, like the links between all of our shows and and it just gets like more and more uh, more and more incestuous all the time with with everything that we're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's cool, man. I I love the podcast community. I think it's a really great community, especially with all the hard rock and metal podcasts. And in fact, I'm going to do something. I want to, I got to get you on a skull session. We'll do something about podcasts and, and, and other stuff. And I want to get you and, you know, some of our old group that we had in the cast iron ring, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Victor and John and, yeah. uh, you know, rock and all those uh, guys from all the different podcasts and, uh, yeah, and and do something kind of cool, but no, I, I think it is kind of kind of a, a cool family, and I'm you know uh, glad to be a part of the CMS podcast network because you know I hate doing uh, and, and and it relieves Matt from doing a lot of work because Matt Hartnett, I got to give him props, my partner, and he's the one that really got me to 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 get Shockwave Skull Sessions back, you know, after the. Road, split with a Roadrunner website, and I got involved with the movies. I stopped the podcasting, and uh, it was Matt Hartnett that kept saying, "Dude, let's get it back. I'll do the production. I'll set set up the website. I'll do because I hate all that tech work. Uh-huh. That's something I don't do, you know. And I'm not a big social media guy. I, you know, I'll do Facebook. That's about it. He goes, "I'll handle most of that." And but being a part of the uh, CMS podcast network, you know, Chris Aiken's a big tech guy, and it, it's really a uh, uh, alleviate a lot of work on on our part to to you know set everything up on on our own website and this and that so it works out good you know and that that was something I I really enjoyed about the cast iron ring as well and uh, you know I, I like to see podcasts you know come together and help each other out yeah. I think it, it's a good thing absolutely yeah, absolutely yeah yeah I guess that's part of the uh, the thing that does kind of keep it going is is that because. Uh, yeah, sometimes you just like you wonder why the heck you are doing it, but you do end up meeting and working with a lot of really good folks. And uh, it is weird now, though, because, you know, with the pandemic, like screwing a lot of things, one thing it has helped a lot has definitely been uh, been podcasting. I mean, we've gotten a huge amount of new listeners this year and, uh, you know, made a lot more of the top 20 list and things. And I think it's just because the mostly the audience has kind of hit this critical mass of, of people. And uh, even, you know, even last summer, we had huge requests. Can you guys put extra episodes out? We're stuck at home. We're quarantined. We we want more content. So we were, you know, we started doing two episodes a week just, just, you know, because people were requesting it. And we had the audio and, you know, so it was like, why not do it? So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time for podcasts. Yeah, I guess that's the one good thing that the pandemic has done uh, for podcasters. You're absolutely right because you uh, got all these people stuck at home quarantine, and what are they doing? They're watching, you know, TV, Netflix, or Amazon Prime, or listening uh, to podcasts. Yeah. You know, and uh, and that's the reason we got into the whole video thing because uh, you know we've got a a, a app on the Roku uh, CMS uh, uh, CMS TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, network and uh, so you could see uh, you know we watch it on the TV 
uh, you know, which is cool. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100. percent I think it's uh, uh, you know really give gave a podcasting a kick in the ass, uh, which is good in, in one extent, and it's bad in the other that you got all these people now doing podcasts. You know that probably shouldn't be doing podcasts, but anyway, that's a <laughs> there, whole. Other there is story. that too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. So. I think CMS has an app for Amazon too, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got it on the Roku, so you okay. could get it. Yeah, on, uh, pretty, I could have swore I'd bought, I downloaded it from from my uh, my Amazon Fire Stick too. So yeah, yeah, Chris is great at all that. He's got all that stuff coming, and he's actually uh, is now taking over heavy metal television. Hmm. So he's getting that in in high gear. Uh, I don't know if that's something I should have announced, but I think it's all right because he's already talked about it. Mm. So, uh, um, yeah, he's he's got some great stuff, and he gets it on all different platforms. And that's a great thing with Skull Sessions being on the CMSPN. We've got it on so many more formats right. uh, now as well. So, yeah, it, it works out pretty good. And, you know, uh, I just love the fact that we could cater uh, to people and uh, – you know, bring them joy, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it's, I, again, you know, Bob, it's always awesome to talk to you, and even more so when it's some great stuff like this. And, and I encourage everybody out there, and within the next few weeks, it will be available. It will be Inside Metal Bay Area Godfathers Part 2. And if you haven't gotten Part 1, well, then while you're waiting for Part 2, go buy yourself Part 1 or, uh, you know, get it from one of the streaming services but uh, definitely check that out, and, and, and if uh, it gets delayed more, then go out and get all the titles like like I have. So, uh, yeah, I'm, again, Bob, thank you so much for taking so much time to uh, talk about this. Let me know what's going on with the film, what's going on with Shockwaves and everything else, and letting everybody here at uh, Focus on Metal know what's going on with Bob Nelbandian. Well, thank you, Scott. I always appreciate uh, all the support from the very beginning of the uh, Inside Metal titles and, and as well as Band vs. Brand. You've always been extremely supportive and definitely give my regards to Irish Richie as well. I will. Uh, yeah, I let him know I was going to be talking to you tonight, so he told me to, to give you a hi. So, yep. All right. And I love listening to your episode. I saw you just posted a Ricky Warwick interview as well. So we, gotta, we did with there's a little yep. bit of behind the scenes story that Richie told me between that one and, and Tom and some things there too. So yeah. So again, it's got another little incestuous uh, occurrence there. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right, my friend, thank you again for all your support. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate your listeners as well. Uh, and, uh, we will talk soon for sure. Awesome. Awesome, Bob. All right. Take care, Scott. All right. There you go. Another chat with our buddy Bob Nelbandian. As I said, always great to talk with Bob. And, you know, usually we go down rabbit holes as well. Tried to keep it in check this week, but it is still two old metalheads just shooting the shit. And ultimately, that's really the premise behind this whole damn show is just that. Just a couple of metalheads shooting the shit, whether it's Bob and me or Richie and me or, or Richie and whoever else. That's really the, the whole thing. So uh, very successful the week, I think, this week and keeping up with that. And, you know, I, I checked as I'm mixing this down and definitely confirmed that uh, Bay Area Godfathers Part 2 is available for pre-order on Amazon right now, $13.99. And the current date as of today when I'm mixing this, they're talking April 13th. Don't see it up on the Metal Rock Films main website yet. That's where I got my Bay Area Godfathers Part 1 pre-order way early. But I did check there, and I don't see it available up on the Metal Rock Films site. But uh, you know, as far as Amazon, if you go in there while you're at it, if you haven't got Part 1, then just order Part 1 right now. Like I said you know, during the interview with Bob, just watch Part 1 a couple of million times until you wait for Part 2 to come out. Or get any one of the other Inside Metal titles available up on Amazon or streaming as well. Or if you're also bored, then go check out everything that Chris and everybody else has going over on the CMS Network. So unlike last week where I knew really what we were going to do next week, we're back to the usual thing this week where I'm not sure. I'm looking at a whole bunch of different things, still trying to figure it out. So between this week and next week, hopefully uh, Richie and I will chat. And we'll figure out what the hell it is that we're going to do. We plenty of audio, so uh, nothing there. I could spin a show every which way, but it just, uh, you know, what direction that we, in fact, want to take it. But rest assured, we'll figure it out between now and then. 
and you will again get another dose of Focus on Metal directly into your waiting metal ear holes right here all over again next week. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself, Richie, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe out there. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.